It's a great pleasure to, uh, to announce our next panel. Uh, my name is John Iskander. I am the chair of the Middle East and North Africa Area Studies Program at the State Department's Foreign Service Institute. Um, I'm here, of course, in an unofficial capacity. Um, we are going to run, uh, Dr. Anthony has given us the green light to run the session for its full length. Uh, we will, we will, uh, I have asked our speakers to prepare for brief comments, so we're looking forward to brief and punchy introductions to their theses, uh, which, will, uh, which we will then have a chance to discuss in question and answer afterwards. <clears throat> we actually have six speakers. As I said, they will each be as brief as humanly possible, I think, uh, and have generously agreed to this. We're going to begin with Dr. Sayed Hussein Musavian. Uh, Dr. Musavian uh, is research scholar uh, at the Program on Science and Global Security at the Woodrow Wilson School of Public and International Affairs uh, at Princeton University, former head of the Foreign Relations Committee of Iran's National Security Council until 2005, spokesman for Iran and its nuclear negotiations with the European Union from 2003 to 5, and author of the Iranian uh, uh, nuclear Crisis Memoir, a memoir, and Iran and the United States recently published an insider's view on the failed past and the road to peace. Um, Dr. Musavian will speak to us about the Iranian perspective on the uh, U.S.-Iranian relationship, and on as well as on the uh, the, the Gulf uh, countries as viewed from Iran. So, how these things look from Tehran? Uh, again, from somebody who's a an insider and outsider in, uh, in viewing this. Uh, our next speaker after that is Dr. Mustafa. Actually, uh, we, don't, we don't have Dr. Mustafa. What happened to him? He's not here. Okay, so uh, our next speaker after that is Dr. Thank you, Dr. Judith Yaffe. Uh, any of you who have been to these conferences in previous years will know uh, Dr. J Dr. Yaffe, uh, Senior Research Fellow, Middle East Project Director. Former George Washington, George Washington University, uh, Elliott School of International Affairs, uh, and as well as uh, a senior analyst uh, formerly on uh, Near East Persian Gulf issues, Office of Near East South Asian An Analysis at the CIA. Uh, and she'll be speaking to us about uh, the question of Iraq in crisis. Can it survive this crisis? And what if it fails? An important question for us at, uh, at this moment. Dr. Najib Radban, uh, Special Representative to the United States for the National Coalition of Syrian Revolution and Opposition Forces, also Associate Professor of Political Science and Middle East Studies at the University of Arkansas. Uh, Dr. Radban will be speaking on the perspective of the Syrian moderates about the war on ISIS-ISIL. Uh, Dr. Ahmed Harb, uh, is Distinguished International Affairs uh, Fellow here at the National Council on U.S.-Arab Relations, uh, former Senior Researcher in Strategic Studies at the Emirates Center for Strategic Studies and Research. Uh, and he'll be speaking to us about the, what the U.S. will gain from staking a claim to 
uh, helping in, in institutional development and protection in Lebanon and in the future Syria. Uh, and then uh, on the addendum to the uh, schedule, you'll see Dr. Trita Parsi, uh, who had originally been invited but had to, we've had, uh, and is back, we're very grateful. Uh, Dr. Parsi, Trita Parsi, will be speaking to us about, again, the U.S.-Iranian relationship, but viewed from the, from the view here in Washington and, and focusing on U.S. Congress. Dr. Musavian, Ambassador Musavian, thank you. Thank you very much. It's really a great pleasure for me to be actually the first uh, Iranian former diplomat or official to be invited to the 23rd annual uh, U.S. Arab Policymaker Conference. Therefore, uh, I understand my limits. I should not be too critical about the U.S. and Arab approaches toward Iran because I'm afraid I would not be invited for the next year. Uh, however, uh, I, I really believe to touch upon the first on uh, relation between Iran, the U.S. and Arabs. Uh, I think uh, there would be no dispute here uh, on Iranian perspective that uh, during the last uh, 35 years since Revolution 1979, uh, the U.S. and majority of Arab countries, they have uh, uh, followed a dual-track policy toward Iran. The first track, regime change, if not possible, the second track, weakening and isolating Iran. However, in every Arab community, interviews, meetings, conferences you go, uh, they are now complaining about the uh, uh, power and the influence of Iran after 35 years. Therefore, uh, I think uh, it's clear for Americans and Arabs uh, the coercion policies of last three decades have failed. Uh, they, they, they really tried whatever they could, from military invasion of Iran, from web, use of weapons of mass destruction, from coercive sanctions to uh, covert war, everything. But however, today Iran is stable, if not the most stable, is powerful, if not the most powerful, and is very influential, if not the most influential nation and the country in the region. Therefore, I would really suggest to uh, bring a change from the U.S. and Arabs and also Iranians for bringing a change to a new relation. Uh, the, at least the geopolitics, dynamics and shifts in the region uh, is dictating us. When we look at the uh, Arab League, Practically, there is no Arab League. The Arab League has collapsed and is completely irrelevant. When we are looking to uh, uh, the Arab world, we see a lot of failed states. The, the U.S. allies collapsed, like Mubarak, Ben Ali. Thanks God, they are not blaming Iran on the collapse of Mubarak or Ben Ali. Iran has not been interfering. And some failed states, at least like Libya, that they are not blaming Iran, interfering Libyan affair. And uh, unfortunately, there is no leadership in Arab world today. Uh, 
on peace process, Iranians maintained from three decades ago, two decades ago, that Israelis are not serious. And after at least 20, 30 years, uh, the Iranian narrative on peace process has been realized. The, the peace process is failed, the two-state solution is failed, and everybody knows this is not Iran problem, this is Bibi's problem uh, uh, resisting the two-state solution. The U.S. policy, whether we like it or not, is shifting and would shift from uh, Persian Gulf Middle East to Asia. Even if Americans, they are not going to shift it, they don't have resources and capacity to continue the traditional policy of invading countries or uh, investing like what they had invested in last 20, 30 years. Although I would say even if they invest, they would not be able to manage Middle East. The, the, the reason is uh, uh, the, the result today in the Middle East, the situation uh, is enough reason about the U.S. Uh, incapability of managing the crisis in the Middle East. Iran-Iraq, no, uh, no more rivalries, and they are uh, going toward alliance. Egypt, the main Iranian rivalry in the uh, Arab countries is really in domestic problem, and at least for a decade, they would not be able to play their role uh, in the region. Uh, Turkey, Neither Iranian ally, nor Arab ally, nor U.S. ally, nor Syrian ally, and nobody really knows where Turkey is going because they are supporting uh, Hamas, Muslim Brotherhood, Jabhat al-Nusra, and at the same time they are the member of NATO. Russia, after uh, Ukrainian crisis, uh, uh, everyone understands that Russia is, would be different regionally and internationally and creating international consensus against Iran would not be possible anymore. The ISIS is uh, a great danger and threat to everybody, Iranians, Arabs, region, Americans, Europeans, Russians. But we need to address, uh, uh, we need to deal with the root causes of the ISIS. The current policy of the US, just military strike, doesn't work, won't work. I think it is everybody understands. To my understanding, we have four root causes we need to deal with the ISIS. The first one is ideology. ISIS is not just a bunch of terrorists. They have been created for one night. This is ideology with a deep root in Arab countries. Millions, they, 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 they really ideologically, not their terrorist activities, but ideologically they are in the same page with the ISIS. Second, bad governance in Middle East for uh, decades. Third is the lack of regional platform coupled with foreign intervention. And the fourth is peace process, Israeli behavior toward Palestinian, Palestinians for 50, 60 years. They are really the root causes of creation of terrorist groups like ISIS. It's not going to be, uh, to, to, to be ended by ISIS. Uh, we need an uh, inclusive coalition to, 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 uh, to deal with the ISIS. We need to focus on weakening ISIS in Syria to save Iraq and the region. We need to use the opportunity for Shia-Sunni rapprochement because this is a real threat to Shia and Sunni both. And 
The next is about Syria. I, I, I will try to be very, very uh, uh, short. I believe we need also on Syria a two-track policy. The first, cooperate with Assad to prevent the collapse of Syria as Syria, as a government, as a country, and as a nation. To prevent the collapse of military and security establishments. Not to make the same mistakes done in Iraq. To uh, preserve the integrity of Syria. To wipe up the terrorists from the, 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 the Syrian border and country. To end the sectarian and civilian war in Syria. And then, in parallel, to agree with Assad on a transitional period, establishing a new governing system based on power sharing with the rule of majority, which Sunni is their majority. How to deal with the Middle East today? I would say first, we need to learn how to deal with Islam and Islamists. Middle East is Muslim. And I think the West doesn't have right strategy how to deal with the Islamists. Uh, we need a grand strategy to, to support the moderates versus radicals. Second, to create a, a platform for regional cooperation. The first phase in the Persian Gulf between GCC, Iran, and Iraq. And second, a broader Middle East with the major playing role for four big powers, Syria, uh, Saudi Arabia, Iran, Turkey, and Egypt. Then, uh, to finalize the nuclear deal with Iran, I just want to uh, tell you on the nuclear, because I was asked to explain a little bit on the nuclear. The deal by November 24th can be reached, I'm 100% sure, if the world powers are going to sign a deal within the framework of international rules and regulations. NPT is the criteria. Within IAEA status and NPT, there is nothing beyond three arrangements. Subsidiary arrangement, code 3.1, additional protocol and safeguard agreement. These are all about transparency measures. If the P5, they are uh, really, uh, really serious for a deal, Iranians, they would sign to all three arrangements. Internationally, there is nothing beyond these three arrangements. But unfortunately, what the US and the world powers are negotiating with Iran today, all the elements they are negotiating are beyond NPT, beyond international rules. There is nothing within NPT. Cap at enrichment is beyond NPT. Cap at a stockpile is beyond NPT. Cap at a uh, uh, number of centrifuges is beyond NPT. Technical conversions at heavy water at Iraq is beyond NPT. The currently, everything they are negotiating with Iran has nothing to do with international rules and regulations. Iranians are ready to cooperate on many of these issues, but if the U.S. is clever enough not to demand uh, very excessively uh, uh, on Iranians. And on Palestinian issue, we should never forget Israel-Palestinian crisis is the core issue of the Middle East. And the last would to force Israel to give up its nuclear arm, nuclear weapons in order to realize WMD free zone in the Middle East. And on the Iranians, 
I think Iranians are ready to uh, go for a greater rapprochement with their uh, regional countries, GCC. And uh, as long as there is no regional cooperation between GCC, Iran, and Iraq, there would not be stability and peace in Persian Gulf. There is no second alternative. GCC knows very well that they cannot balance the power and the weight of Iran. They are using the U.S. for over three decades to balance the power of Iran. Why we do not go for a regional cooperation system like EU, where the big powers like Germany, they have been engaged, involved within a regional cooperation, and the small countries like Norway, they have no fear anymore from uh, Germany. Why we cannot do the same in the region? But, but we really need to respect and to recognize their legitimate original rights and interests of Iran in the, in the region and the weight and to engage through a regional cooperation. Thank you very much. Well, that was a surprise, wasn't it? Um, I want to thank the panelists. I want to thank Mr. Mosavian for pointing out uh, uh, through his very kind words about the United States, what's wrong within the region and uh, what's wrong about U.S. influence. We're, uh, it, I think it just goes to show that it's one more thing Iran and the U.S. have in common, that both of us in some ways have had waning influence. I'm, uh, sure that uh, I'm sure you would agree with me on that, uh, but I want to turn to something else, uh, and I want to refocus back. I want to talk about Iran, and I want you to, as I start, and I know I'm time is always limited. I, if you heard me last year, I will not repeat anything I said last year. Isn't that nice? Because Iraq is not the same as it was last year. And next year, it may not be there at all. Who knows? It frightens me very much as someone who has long followed this country. But ask yourself this before I get started. And ask yourself this as you think about the criticism you've heard today of the Obama administration, of the support a few people have given for its different policies, and including of, of what we have just heard from our Iranian friend. What would you do if you had been awarded the Nobel Peace Prize after just taking office? And now, towards the end of your second term, we're contemplating war, if not boots on the ground, a major crisis in Iraq, a crisis that's been going on in Syria, and that demands our attention. You think that's a bit of a problem? It might be. Now, what I want to do in the little time I have is to talk about what I call some simple truths, things to think about if you don't hear anything else that I say for the next seven and a half minutes. Uh, but it'll sort of be encapsulated in these six thoughts. Now, I want, to, I want to give you this warning as well for purposes of full disclosure. It's this. I used to be an optimist on Iraq. Uh, perhaps I was the last remaining optimist on Iraq. And in some ways, I think I still am, or if not, I am uh, maybe the last one in some respects. But uh, as I go through this, I th and I think you heard the ambassador this morning, you read the papers every day, you think you have a handle on what's going on. Things are very complicated. 
And I would also remind, if, you, if you're reading and trying to follow who's up and who's down, who's winning and who's losing, that what you're seeing each day, no matter what media you follow, is only a daily snapshot. You cannot go to major conclusions from one snapshot today. Did we take a village today? Did ISIS take it back? Who's in charge? Who's counting? You can't. You have to take, as I think the ambassador said this morning, the longer view. This is a crisis which will not go away quickly. Now, for my simple truths, and again, my first one, I guess, and my apologies to Ambassador Faley, who I have a great amount of admiration for. Iraq may not survive, but if not, as he says, what then? You have to consider the consequences. I think that if you consider those consequences and how you view things, it very much, how you view what's happening in Iraq depends on where you sit. Do you sit in Kurdistan? Do you sit in, in, um, in Baghdad? Do you sit in uh, Najaf? Do you sit anywhere. You can't sit much in Anbar, as a, a Sunni friend told me yesterday. He hasn't been there, which is his home, in a long time. Now, uh, it's not just uh, what you, where you sit, but it's also, um, I think, uh, what do they want? And that's getting difficult to sort out because we still don't have a country that's come anywhere close to agreeing on the need for national consensus and reconciliation. And that, to me, is one of the basics that's needed. What I'm told by the Iraqis I speak to, high level, in between, but Iraqis, uh, we are a mess. The Kurds will not fight for the Sunni or the Shia. The Shia won't fight for the Kurds or the Sunni. The Sunnis won't fight for anybody else. Uh, each has his own economic interests, his own community, his own tribal, his own interests, but none will fight for each other or for Iraq. And that is a great problem. And it's one that you will not solve by saying, well, I know, let's set up national guards for each, each uh, federal unit. That's not going to solve that. What um, the ambassador, for example, believes very strongly is Iraqis need a new identity for Iraq's whole history. At least the past, what, 90 years, it's always been about identity anyway. Uh, Iraqis are willing to talk, but there's no trust. And it's going to be hard to build trust a second time, especially among those communities that feel so marginalized and so cheated after the first go around and the first uh, phase of the Civil War. Now, the other thing is, I think that uh, if you look at who's in charge in Iraq, um, the controls, uh, you can look at it either way. We used to talk about Maliki, is, is he the new Saddam or not? And now we wonder about Ubaidi, who is not Maliki. In many ways, his background is different, his approach is different. I'll come back to that in the end. But I think the point is that uh, how much control he will be able to exercise is a serious question, or as a friend of mine uh, said yesterday, Iraqi, a Sunni, I will tell you, that the mafias are con in control in Baghdad. And you can guess who those mafias, those political party factional interests are. Now, um, I would point out uh, comments as well. There's a, a question that uh, on the Iranian connection, either we gave Iraq to the Iranians, no, either we let them in, no, they were there already. That's not the issue. Um, but there was a lot of, I think, growing, and I mentioned this last year, growing dissatisfaction among many Iraqis with the role the Iranians were playing. One can only say, with all honesty, given the difficulty that erupted 
so surprisingly, it shouldn't have been a surprise to Maliki and others, but uh, that ISIS had such a rapid success, who answered the cry for help first? And yes, it was the Iranians. They were there, and they were there immediately. They're the closest ones there. And uh, everybody else was thinking about it before they decided on what they would do. So that does give, uh, I will say, one, one to you, one, one to your side. Not yet already. So um, let me move on uh, to that. Um, if you're looking at it from an Iraqi point of view, Iraq has several options. And it may, they may change one up, one down a little. Uh, more or less, but I think if you think about it, uh, what's happened? Why Iraq failed, you do allow, I'll make it real simple. The collapse of the military, no control of corruption, uh, of the widespread bribery uh, that was going on, no, no uh, interest in, in capabilities, or even if you had uh, the units manned and armed and able to fight. Direct infer interference from Maliki, politicization of the military security services, uh, insistence on sectarian quotas. I could go on with a lot of things, but the point is there was an absence of all of these things. So what are the options for Iraq? You, I have what I call the 4320 plan. Um, and let's start with Iraq 1 which means Iraq stays pretty much as it is, united, uh, in some kind of a balance while they fight this out. I don't know if that will happen. It may be a short-term solution. Iraq too, yes, the Kurds separate, the Arabs come together, because there is, a there is a feeling of Iraqi nationalism, and at some point they will fight, in the end, if the uh, Kurds have taken all the territory and power with them, that will be the next battle. Iraq three, the many states, Sunnistan, Shiistan, Kurdistan, I don't believe in that. I don't think that's what the Arabs of Iraq want, Shia or Sunni. Uh, the Kurds may want it as well, but again, right now they are not that interested publicly in talking about this because of the great pressures that have been brought to bear on them. So, what do we have? Uh, and the zero solution? Well, that's chaos. And that's no solution because that simply uh, will perpetuate the situation that we have. And you know that in the absence of, of governance, in the absence of a state, of a rule of law, what you have is the ability to declare a caliphate, uh, the ability to recruit, and the fact that this cancer that is uh, Daesh, ISIL, whatever you want to call it, uh, does not just disappear. So, can Iraq be saved? I would like to think yes, but a body must do, must try to do certain things to happen. First of all, the military has got to come back, and they've got to, the Iraqi military has to defeat Daesh. Um, they have to resolve as well the problems which allowed this group to flourish. Those are the so-called root causes, but you're not dealing with a group that believes in negotiation. I think we already see that. The second point I would make is that uh, the answer is not this government of national unity that is created, where you bring back every politician that's held some position since 2003 or four or five and think this is going to succeed. It's not. Uh, it simply does, I think, underscore that Abadi is in a weak position. He represents the ability of the party's desire to stay together and to stay in control, but 
he is not in, uh, in total control. He's got to deal with factions that are still more, more interested in their WASTA, not in the state itself. And that is a major problem. He has to remove Maliki's advisors in the civilian and the military government. He's got to end that corruption. And that's not a, an easy thing to say. Yes, I know. I'm th I have one more sentence to make. Uh, and that's this. It may not be possible to save Iraq. I would like to think that it is. But Mr. Abadi needs a base of support. He needs the ability to make decisions, and I think he's capable of that. I think he's also a very rational man. He did not grow up in exile in two police states. He's not a conspiratorialist the way Mr. Maliki was. He uh, spent his exile in England as a successful entrepreneur and engineer and was independent. Uh, did not have to depend on anybody for his daily living. His ability, he's got to be able to act on them. And that is something, A, his cabinet, his government, the Iraqis have to give him. And the second is that we have to help him with that. We, the neighbors, whether it's Iran, it's the Gulf states, uh, but the neighbors, the international community, we have to show our support for that as well. Because if he loses, ta-da, halas, uh, we will all lose. The mafias will lose, the Iraqis will lose, the neighbors will lose. So I think uh, if I've done anything to bring home this threat to you, I hope I've succeeded. Thank you very much. Thank you. I want to thank the organizers as well for including Syria uh, on this year's conference. And uh, in my eight minutes, I'll, uh, I'll actually revise my uh, comments to address some of the points mentioned by Ambassador uh, Musavian. Uh, let me start by saying the war on ISIS is a welcome um, strategy by the international community from the perspective of Syrians. And when I say Syrians, I'm talking about most Syrians, those who suffered uh, the atrocities uh, you know, of the Assad regime. Um, the good news is there is a unity over that purpose, and there is a unity over the need to defeat ISIS. Uh, the bad news so far, the way the war has been conducted has not been effective. In fact, we have some evidence that uh, ISIL, Daesh, has been able to recruit more lately. Uh, we've seen some uh, figures uh, just the last uh, 48 hours. This is why, from our point of view, um, moderate Syrians, we believe a comprehensive strategy uh, to fight ISIS must include three other elements besides defeating ISIS militarily. Um, and under defeating ISIS militarily, uh, we welcome the fact that the strategy announced by the Obama administration does include working with the moderate opposition, which includes a specific program called the Train and Equip. But I think we need to accelerate that program, and we need to be very creative and effective uh, in implementing that, because the time is, is of the essence. But the three other elements of the strategy, I think, that must be included in a comprehensive strategy to defeat ISIS uh, should include the following. First, we should actually um, address the question of foreign intervention of all its form, and I place the Iranian intervention at the top of the list. I think when we want to uh, talk about terrorist organizations, 
uh, we should uh, include other terrorist organizations that are fighting in Syria. Hezbollah has been terrorizing the Syrian population on the side of the regime. Uh, there are a dozen Iraqi Shiite organizations been uh, recruited by the Assad regime to kill Syrians. I think they must be included. The second element, which is the core element in the minds of most Syrians, is to address the underlying causes of terrorism. And here I disagree with Ambassador Musavian about the underlying causes. I agree with him about one, one of them, the bad governance. In fact, I would go further and say the brutal governance, the criminal governance uh, of the Assad regime was the first underlying causes of bringing ISIS into Syria and giving it a cause. Um, so any strategy must include a political solution. And that political solution, from our perspective, should be based on the Geneva document, which creates the transitional governing body. Uh, that leaves no room for Assad. In fact, in Geneva, uh, there is the, um, uh, it allows for both sides to have a veto on the other side. And I could assure you that more, most Syrians will not accept Assad after what he committed, all of these crimes against humanity and all of the war crimes. So um, your suggestions about the two-track policies, uh, Mr. Ambassador, will not be accepted for most Syrians. So um, the underlying causes, again, is the brutality of the Assad, is the barrel bombing, is the support of Iran and Russia and the providing of a political cover for a criminal regime to uh, displace half of its population and destroy the rest of the country. Um, the last element of any strategy to fight ISIS must in fact support moderate governance. And uh, um, one thing, you know, one of the rationale presented by the ambassador for working with Assad is to save Syria. Uh, I'm sorry. Uh, Syria, half, half of Syria is already destroyed. Half the population are either internally displaced or made into refugees. That figure is 11 million. And the person who's responsible for that is Bashar al-Assad. So for Syrians, without the departure of Assad, there is no solution. This is the beginning and the end of any comprehensive strategy uh, for fighting ISIL and fighting all other terrorist organizations. Uh, there are groups on the ground that's trying to fill that vacuum. Um, there are local councils, there are um, uh, local communities trying to provide governance into these areas. And I think one way to help that immediately is to provide safe zone. Um, for a lot of Syrians, they cannot understand how the international community put up a, an alliance of 50 countries to fight one terrorist organization, and it could not tell Assad to stop the daily barrel bombing that's going at the same time while ISIL is committing its atrocities. So uh, providing a safe zone immediately, I think, can help the cause of fighting uh, terrorism and allow the moderate opposition to establish, um, uh, provide humanitarian assistance and to establish good governance. So uh, from this point of view of most Syrians, the war on terrorism begins and ends with the departure of Assad. Thank you. Uh, good afternoon, good to be with you again. Uh, uh, I uh, decided for myself to uh, talk a little bit about what the United States can help, uh, can, can do to help um, basically reinstitute institutional life or create such uh, in Lebanon and Syria. Um, uh, Syria is going through its uh, civil war, its own 
destruction, very, very unfortunate. Um, and Lebanon is, uh, seems to be, to uh, many observers, to be on the road there. Uh, unfortunately, it had uh, uh, fought with itself for 15 years, and, um, and now uh, the seeds uh, seem to be uh, regenerating uh, uh, after uh, so many years of peace and uh, rebuilding and reconstruction. Um, uh, so, the, you know, people like me are who see life in uh, half full glasses, not half empty, um, uh, wish that something can be done about institutional rejuvenation in these two countries. Um, uh, but uh, first, just a couple of observations that uh, situations in Lebanon and Syria seem to be not only the result of obviously domestic issues, but also the manifestations of wider and a general struggle uh, for basically almost the future of the, of the Middle East. Um, uh, uh, to me, such important questions, uh, there are many, many important questions of which are uh, probably the following. Uh, is the area to remain an, an arena for continuing uh, violence and conflict, uh, not only in Lebanon and Syria, but the whole, the, the entire Middle East? Is the politics of the area going to be a function of sectarian divides only? Um, uh, or are they really a function of sectarian divides? Are we heading toward a redrawing of the overall map, as many are really uh, speculating, whether uh, Sykes-Picot can be scrapped for a new Sykes-Picot, so, so to speak? Can the new map be redrawn, if so desired, without causing innumerable damages and unbearable costs and pain for everybody involved? For how long can disaster politics continue to define intra-Middle Eastern affairs and international affairs in the Middle East. In my opinion, there, are, there is a definite, definite need for institutional development away from obviously personal, personal politics. I know this is a very, very uh, uh, difficult thing to do, but there doesn't seem to be any other answer other than getting rid of personalized politics and building institutional life for all of these political systems. Uh, United States positive intervention and pur purposeful positive intervention and knowing po po uh, positive intervention to build institutions for the area is, to me, is very essential. Uh, uh, unfortunately, what, what actually worries me and worries a lot of people uh, like me is almost the apparent nonchalance, that appearance that, that, that accompanies some poor knowledge of some very, very basic things in the Middle East and in Lebanon and Syria, obviously. Uh, and uh, uh, this, you know, it's, it's almost like a, a head-first approach to thinking that only religious and sectarian considerations should actually be entertained. Um, uh, and these are the best indicators, really, of trouble. Uh, nobody seems to really look at, you know, everybody seems to be uh, uh, digging uh, in the same hole. I mean, you know, it's a, they say, you know, uh, if you find yourself in a hole, stop digging. Apparently, everybody is still digging the same hole, trying to find yet more, uh, uh, more gems, so to speak, of uh, the current situation. Uh, the Middle East and the Arab world and the international community watching from afar sees only religious divisions. What needs to actually be seen is day-to-day -day issues, poverty, lack of meaningful education, health services, hopes for the future. People want 
to live their lives. And that's the most important part. In Lebanon, uh, there are very, very many issues that need to be really dealt with, specifically on institutional uh, and institutional development. Uh, the United States has been helping Lebanon, thankfully, I'm sure, for the Lebanese, uh, 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 militarily. You know, uh, arms and training, sharing intelligence. Uh, Lebanon is uh, a part of the international coalition to fight, uh, to fight ISIS. And uh, it actually should be, although I doubt that it can really do very much militarily about it. Uh, there are very, very essential issues. The presidency, uh, there is no president in Lebanon. Uh, the last uh, president uh, finished his term in uh, June, uh, last June. And uh, since then, the you know, parliament has not been able to even, even convene. Uh, to elect a new president, uh, whoever it is, just at least to just continue that institution, that institution uh, to be the, uh, you know, the head of that uh, uh, executive authority in the country. And that, that provides basically a legitimacy for the political system as it is now. Um, there, there needs to be a consensus candidate. You know, there are people who are uh, proposing now to be president, and uh, one of them is a former uh, war criminal, the other one is a less so of a former war criminal, uh, unfortunately, and uh, honestly, I mean, you know, things, uh, uh, you know, uh, truth has to be said, although it hurts a lot, and it especially hurts the Lebanese, because they really don't know what to do about it. Uh, uh, Samir Jaja uh, uh, has killed many, many people uh, during the Civil War, and now he's running for president, while uh, General Aoun wants to be president, uh, is being supported by Hezbollah, and, uh, and uh, Hezbollah and General Aoun don't want to allow their, uh, their uh, deputies to go to parliament to uh, convene a quorum, to have at least you know, two-thirds of the members so uh, the parliament can do its job. So uh, apparently uh, there are more important things. Uh, I doubt that there are, but uh, apparently they see that this is uh, a good thing to do. Uh, parliament. Uh, Lebanese Parliament has extended its own term uh, from uh, uh, like almost seven, no, 15 months ago. Uh, it was supposed to have been re-elected in June of 2013, and uh, they, uh, they decided uh, that, uh, well, okay, at the time, uh, there wasn't a whole lot of um, a political consensus around the country or in Parliament, so they decided we'll, we'll just uh, for one time, uh, and that one time, by the way, has been repeated many times, uh, they extended their own term for, for 17 months uh, until November 20th of this year, next month. And uh, now, so far, they haven't decided on a new electoral law or uh, anything of that nature, which basically means that they're going to extend yet one more time for another, uh, uh, another two and a half years almost till, the, till June of, of 2017. So there has to be a renewal of that parliament. And the problem with this is, you know, presidency and parliament is, the presidency is for the Maronite Christians and the parliament, the head of the parliament is a Shiite Lebanese. So uh, the Maronites say, well, uh, we have to elect our president before we re renew the term of parliament or elect new parliamentarians because that would be an extension of Shiite uh, 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 
so to speak, uh, role in government without an extension of Maronite role in government. So basically, it, uh, this institutional renewal has meant, uh, has been uh, sacrificed uh, to, uh, to just bickering over uh, which, 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 uh, which uh, uh, confession really has its way or uh, which doesn't. Um, uh, there also are uh, some things that are related to the international situation in Lebanon. In other words, uh, Lebanon has, uh, in 2006, Lebanon uh, Hezbollah fought a war with Israel and uh, Resolution 1701 was supposed to have finished all uh, hostilities and basically uh, spread Lebanese uh, uh, army troops uh, and UN troops around the, uh, the country uh, in its, you know, the borders with Israel and Syria. Uh, that has not been done. Uh, what, what, what I think the United States can do is basically reinvigorate this issue of 1701 and truly have a demarcation of borders between Syria and Lebanon and, uh, and truly spread all the, uh, uh, put, put troops on uh, all the borders so there won't be incursions between, in and out of Lebanon for uh, terrorists or anybody who is going to uh, be involved in the uh, Syrian uh, crisis, which basically has become, long ago, has become a Lebanese crisis when uh, Hezbollah decided that uh, it is its own duty to defend the, uh, the Bashar Assad regime. Uh, in Syria, it's, um, uh, I really won't put my, uh, my foot in my mouth on uh, institutional development in Syria, but I think there is a very um, uh, desperate need, so to speak, for uh, 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 institutional development, no personalized politics. Uh, I believe that Bashar Assad has lost his uh, uh, life expectancy in Syria. He should be gone. Um, I think the United States can help in trying to rebuild Syrian institutions. I think probably the best thing to do is to start with now is uh, basically help uh, develop alternate state institutions in whatever liberated areas that can be liberated from the Syrian regime and uh, ISIS control. Uh, my time is out. Uh, I'd love to entertain some questions later. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, and Dr. Trita Parsi, I didn't introduce him properly, president and founder of the National uh, Iranian-American Council and author of several books, including a book on U.S.-Iranian relations. Thank you. Thank you so much for that, John, and thank you for the organizers for inviting me here again. It's always a pleasure to come back to this conference. I thought I'll give uh, a brief update. I'm going to leave the region for a short while and, and take it back to the United States and talk a little bit about uh, the current negotiations what is likely to happen, and perhaps towards the end, if I get a chance, uh, share a couple of thoughts of how this may or may not affect the rest of the regional equation. Um, I think it's quite fascinating to see how far things have gone just in the last year. Compare it to where the United States and Iran have been on this nuclear issue for about 15 years. Take a look at the American position during the Bush administration, when at first there was a refusal to even engage directly with the Iranians. Sometimes it's forgotten uh, that it wasn't too far long ago in which the United States believed that if it sat down with the Iranians, it would legitimize the Iranian government. And as a result, the nuclear negotiations took place in the absence of the United States. Then was the insistence that the Iranians had to dismantle the entire program and have zero enrichment, not a single spinning centrifuge. Today, we're in a situation in which the negotiations have made significant progress, and the conversation is about 
the dimensions of the Iranian enrichment program, which likely is going to be quite a few centrifuges more than three or four thousand, actually, rather than uh, being down at zero. Now, some would say that this progress has been done because of the pressure that has put on Iran as a result of sanctions, and without a doubt, sanctions did harm the Iranian economy tremendously. But I think that is a rather simplistic analysis, mindful of the fact that there's been a significant shift on the American position. In essence, what actually did happen, I would believe, is that the two sides gave up their pipe dreams, their insistence on completely unrealistic positions. And once they embraced each other's red lines, within a year we've seen dramatic progress. The Iranians essentially had to give up their pipe dream, the idea of being able to present the international community with a nuclear fait accompli. On the American side, the pipe dream of rolling the Iranian nuclear program back to zero centrifuges and zero enriched uranium was also given up. Once that happened, and the two sides embraced and accepted each other's red lines, we've seen a tremendous amount of progress. In the words of Wendy Sherman herself just last week, she mentioned that in the last year, on an issue that was viewed as almost impossible, they've come approximately 90 to 95% of the way towards a deal. In fact, I would say that right now, there are clear indications that something very significant has happened just in the last two weeks in the negotiations. Uh, there are reasons to believe and to be far more optimistic than I think many of us have been. And the clearest sign of that, I would argue, is that for the first time, the administration itself has actually begun selling the deal on Capitol Hill and in Washington at large. The principle of the Obama administration has been not to go particularly aggressive or forward-leaning on the issue of selling diplomacy at home, uh, because the idea was that there's no idea of trying to sell something that we actually don't have yet. Not put yourself in the embarrassing position of starting to sell the contours of a deal and then come back with either no deal or a rather different deal. That's why, in, for instance, um, the speeches that Barack Obama has made about the strategic rationale for engagement were all made by candidate Obama, not by President Obama. By the time that he became president, a different attitude was uh, adopted in which diplomacy was pursued, but not necessarily in such a manner that it would be sold at home. This has now changed from last week. Now the administration is actively selling the deal on Capitol Hill, uh, as well as to the media. And I think there are good reasons to believe that the reason this decision has been made is because they've come so close to a deal right now that they are confident that we'll be able to bridge the last couple of percentage points of the road by November 24th and uh, come back and, as a result, having prepared the ground of being able to get acceptance for that deal in Washington, D.C. Now, for some in Congress, this is not good news. This is bad news. They would much prefer not to see a deal take place between the United States and Iran. We can go into the motivations of them later on. But one of the ways in which the attempt is now to try to derail this process is to force a vote in Congress one way or another on this issue as early as possible. The calculation is quite understandable. If you go and try to get acceptance, an up and down vote in Congress on this issue, prior to the deal actually having been implemented and prior to the two sides being able to prove and demonstrate that they're actually living up to the agreement, the chances of this 35-year-old enmity and historical animosity between the United States and Iran 
will prevail and the vote will be a negative one. If, however, as the President is seeking to do, you first use sanctions waivers and other measures that are reversible, that will provide the Iranians with relief but can be changed in case the Iranians are not living up to their end of the bargain, and only later on go to Congress a year and a half, two years from now, to, uh, to call for a vote, you have the opportunity to have two years of good news dramatically change the atmosphere on Capitol Hill and make a vote on sanctions relief in Congress that currently looks completely impossible, quite possible two years from now. In order to prevent that, measures have been taken to make the argument that the President is trying to circumvent Congress. And as a result, Congress needs to assert its authority um, and call for an early vote. The President has never had the intention of circumventing Congress because at the end of the day, there's not going to be a deal with the Iranians unless the sanctions are permanently lifted, not just waived. The question is when you go to Congress. And the idea of going to Congress right away is in many ways uh, a rather strange calculation unless, of course, your intent is to uh, prevent the deal. For some in the region as well, this may not come across as good news. Fear being that the negotiations will leave the Iranians, not just with capability, but to be frank, has nothing to do with the details of the deal. It has to do with the fear that this legitimizes Iran as a nuclear threshold country, that it legitimizes some of the gains of influence that Iran has made in the region in the last decade or so, that it reduces the animosity of, between the United States and Iran without necessarily reducing automatically at least the animosity that exists between Iran and some of the regional powers. And as a result, leaving those regional powers in a more vulnerable and lonely position vis-a-vis -vis Iran than they currently are. That calculation had led some to very vocally oppose the interim deal and others to oppose it perhaps a bit more quietly. And that calculation may not have been entirely incorrect when there was some sort of a prospect of being able to undermine the negotiations. But if we're in a situation right now in which this looks increasingly likely, I think it would be worthwhile for regional powers to start considering what are the potential positives of this deal that at the end of the day would be beneficial for the region as a whole, but also beneficial for individual states. Does an improved U.S.-Iran relations, a resolution to the nuclear uh, uh, problem, the reintegration of Iran into the global economy, provide opportunities to tame Iran's radical impulses, real or perceived? Does it provide opportunities to actually engage in a much more fruitful and constructive dialogue between the GCC and Iran about security in the region? Does it provide opportunities to perhaps pursue real diplomacy in Syria as well and make sure that some sort of a solution can be found there by actually including all of the key stakeholders in that process rather than thinking that a process can be successful by excluding them. Does an Iran that has more Javad Zarifs and Hassan Rouhani's and less Ahmadinejad's provide opportunities in the Middle East for other regional states to be able to find a better relationship with Iran? I think it would be wise to start thinking about those questions rather than, uh, as some have, but not all of course, think that this ultimately is a categorical negative uh, for the region as a whole. I'll close there. Thank you. How much time do we have? Uh, we still have uh, about 50 minutes, so, or 40 minutes.
Having just listened to these presentations, I can see that uh, we won't be able to get through all the questions that, uh, that their presentations have raised. Uh, but I see that there are several major themes here. And rather than deal with many very detailed uh, questions, I think I'll just ask uh, for our distinguished speakers to answer maybe uh, a few of them uh, and have a chance to talk a little more about the big picture. Uh, one question that I think is a major one here is uh, how realistic is it given that Iran's seven Arab neighbors all have their own issues with Tehran to expect that the United States will likely be able to reset its relations with the Islamic Republic without upsetting or unduly impinging on the interests of Iran's Arab neighbors. And here particularly we're looking at the GCC countries and Iraq. Uh, and I think we've heard earlier today uh, many of the accusations of Iranian uh, terrorism in the region and interference in the region. But at the same time, we've heard about the possibility of the game changer, uh, a nuclear deal, uh, perhaps a, uh, an arrangement for a common strategy in uh, fighting against uh, the common enemy, uh, uh, ISIS, or whatever we call it. Um, and I would like to see what reasonable chances each one of you sees for this kind of a, of a game-changing deal? And if so, how would you arrange it? How would you uh, negotiate it? Would you tie it into a nuclear deal? Or would you make it a separate aspect of some kind of security arrangement with the GCC countries plus Iraq? Something a little bit on the, the big picture thing. I think uh, related to this is the question of who in Iran actually can make a decision. Uh, is it Rouhani or is it the supreme leader or some kind of combination? And many people are unclear on that. Um, let me start uh, on this side and ask the first speaker, uh, Ambassador, to, to come up here or if you want to. We can do it. Thank you. David, who decides in Iran is like who decides in the U.S. Actually, nobody knows really the Congress decides or Obama or, or, or lobbies like Jewish lobby. Uh, Iran also has its own system. They have the government independent from parliament, judiciary independent from government and parliament, and National Security Council. But the most important decisions are taken by the national, Supreme National Security Council, which the government, parliament, the head of judiciary, everybody is there, and the leader needs to agree with the decision. That's why when you uh, have seen a nuclear policy during President Khatami with the same leader, was completely different with the nuclear policy during Ahmadinejad with the same leader because the National Security Council, they were deciding and the leader was not going to reject. 
you have experienced two very different uh, nuclear policy with the same leader. Uh, whether uh, there would be a possibility uh, for rapprochement between Iran and the U.S. while there is a big gap between Iran and the neighbors, I believe not. Uh, Iran uh, needs uh, to recognize uh, a parallel policy approaching the, the regional Arab countries, the neighbors, at the same time with the U.S. Of course, the nuclear deal would be uh, a breakthrough to open the door for regional cooperations. Our Arab neighbors also, they need to recognize that the U.S. is the major international player in the region, and Iran is the major regional players. And Iran and the U.S., they have a lot to do to deal directly, like the situation in Afghanistan. I mean, the Iranians and Americans, they are the key players there, not Arabs. Even today in Iraq, if it was Maliki, Tehran, and Washington, they were both supporting Maliki. Removal of Saddam, Tehran, and Washington, they cooperated to remove Saddam. Today, Abadi, Tehran, and Washington, they are both supporting Abadi. They have a lot to deal directly together. And this, I believe, is the way to go. Dr. Yaffe, next question. Yes, I know. <laughs> a little slow. Um, briefly put, if you look at the nuclear deal as a game changer, for Iraq it will not be. The Iraqis can't afford, don't have, the, I think, the time to be that interested in what it will mean. They have an existential crisis, meaning that takes precedence. And that is the fight with ISIS and surviving. And they have never uh, gotten involved. And even uh, Maliki did not say much at all about the negotiations, except to offer to facilitate them, host them, help them. So I don't think that's a real game changer. To me, the game changer, uh, if there was one, might have been in Iran's reconsidering its support for Maliki when they saw that he was costing them more than supporting him and keeping him in power was paying off paying them. In other words, you do a cost-benefit analysis, Maliki's gotten too expensive. He's, he's put Iranian interests at risk. If you make that same cost-benefit analysis, towards Syria and the support for Assad. If you want to have better relations with the United States and the region, and as, you, as Mr. Musavian has said, uh, there is a recognition that the two are related, U.S.-GCC relations, then this would be, I would think, a very important element and might work to get Iran to the table rather than the exclusion that we've currently seen. Uh, well, um, this is really quite complicated, but um, uh, I, I don't think that the neighbors of Iran are, would be upset with a nuclear deal. They really are not upset. They're just upset. They would be upset if the nuclear deal turned out to be to their own detriment, obviously. And I don't think the United States is prepared to do that. I don't think that they are prepared to accept anything less than what they think is safe for them. 
um, uh, considering that they are they would be the very first ones to be uh, affected by what what the nuclear deal would be whatever its terms are um, uh, the, the it would be a game changing uh, uh, thing if it were to really come at at the expense of either party anyway i don 't think the GCC nations are calling for a nuclear deal to come at, at anybody's expense. You know, I, I think they have already staked their uh, their position as they are. Uh, they welcome any nuclear deal that would respect international law, that would respect uh, international rules, and uh, they they're fine with it. The only problem that GCC countries and other countries have in the area is that. Iran, if and uh, you know, with all due respect to the ambassador, uh, uh, he used the very the very words. Iran is the major regional player, as if everybody else is just simply there. Uh, 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 no, it's not true. Uh, the uh, GCC is there. The GCC is very very essential to the to the area. It's very essential to the security and the peace of the area and the prosperity of the area. Without the GCC signing off on some very, very important things, whether it is a nuclear deal, whether it is peace for and security for the area, I don't think that, the, that anything can be game-changing in, uh, in that respect. Um, uh, the other, other, other issue uh, is uh, the GCC and others are also very, very worried that uh, 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 an Iranian um, ascendance, so to speak, Iran being coming up, uh, coming out on top, basically is uh, a very game-changing uh, for uh, thing for everybody in the negative fashion. In other words, you know, Iran is now at the entrance to the Red Sea. It is with the Houthis. Iran is now with Hezbollah in Lebanon. Iran supports the Al-Shabaab in Somalia. I mean. Iran is in Syria. Uh, Iran is everywhere. In other words, GCC countries are just simply uh, uh, sitting duck right in the middle. I, I, I don't think that would really be a very, very uh, good and healthy situation. Um, that's enough. Thank you. I think it's, a, it's an excellent question when you talk about who decides in, in Iran because I think you have this duality. From one hand, you have the charm of Rouhani Zarif, especially in pursuing international diplomacy, but at the same time, you have the national security establishment. In Syria, the person is in charge is General Soleimani of the Revolutionary Guards. They are running the operation. The Revolutionary Guards are in Syria. They are providing expertise, they are providing money, providing intelligence information. They're basically running the war on behalf of Assad beside their allies. So while we welcome, um, I mean, the ambassador said Iran is stable, if not the most stable, powerful, if not the most, but it's aggressive, expansionist, if not the most expansionist and aggressive. And I think unless we address that question, Iran is part of the problem, not the solution. Uh, again, when it, when it comes to, to Syria, we welcome a more constructive role for Iran. In fact, we believe the Geneva process failed because it excluded um, the regional aspect, that is, more Saudi-Iranian rapprochement, which is, I think, needed, because the, the, the conflict has its local, regional, and international dimension. So, um, again, we would like that diplomatic charm coming out of Iran, but we would like to see action. And I think uh, Iranian constructive role in Syria can 
pave the role for better relations with the GCC countries, who are, in fact, not very fond of the Assad, as, as you could tell. Um, so uh, for us, again, um, we believe that um, uh, Iran, if Iran is serious about becoming um, more uh, acceptable regional player, um, they could do that in Syria by um, ending their support of a criminal regime. Okay, <laughs> let me just add a couple of things. I think uh, there is an understandable fear um, on the GCC side because these are going to be some potentially profound shifts in the region. But there's also an element of exaggerated fear. There's a fear that the United States would move towards some sort of a relationship with Iran similar to what it had with the Shah, in which Iran was the primary uh, balancer in the region for the United States. I don't think that is in the cards in any way, shape, or form. It's not an attractive option for the United States, nor is it even an option for the Iranians. For a combination of strategic as well as ideological reasons, the Iranians, even post a nuclear deal, are not going to position themselves to compete with Saudi, Israel, Turkey, perhaps Egypt, about who is America's main friend in the region. They're going to continue to adopt a position in which they're going to position themselves as the main state challenger, rival of the United States, but in a far less hostile way than it's been in the last 35 years. They're doing this for their own reasons. It has less to do with the United States. Um, but that also means that it's not going to try to um, position itself in such a way that it would replace some of the other GCC states uh, or uh, gain its influence in Washington at, at their expense. Beyond that, I think that the main theme of the conversation that worries me is the fact that this is all taking place within the paradigm of balance of power. Uh, whereas in reality, I think there is a need for the region as a whole to try to transcend this and move towards a collective security mentality and a collective security uh, conversation. Clearly, it doesn't matter how powerful Iran is or perceives itself to be. It will never be secure unless the rest of the region also feels secure. And that's true for the other side as well. Security is not something that one can have at the expense of the other. It's a collective good. That mentality, I fear, has not taken much root in the region. And until it does, it doesn't matter how the powers shift this way, that way, how the order of the system changes. It will not be a secure region. And that conversation should have started a long time ago, and perhaps today is at least the, the least uh, worst day for it to start uh, beginning as well. Thank you. There, uh, there are clearly many more uh, questions. I think uh, the uh, that we could that we could address. Um, we're gonna. Uh, Pull, pull this together, I, I think, and I, I don't feel like I can do justice to that. Just to say a few things, I, in a sense, following on, on what Trita just said, I think one of the, we all know that in the region, uh, whether it's on the Arab side of the Gulf or from the Israelis, we hear a lot of concern that changing U.S.-Iranian relations uh, will impact those, our relations, the U.S. relations with uh, the GCC countries, uh, or with the Israelis and so on. And I think this discussion that we just had now is a really interesting and valuable one. I mean, we, uh, 
and and having Dr. Musavian frame the discussion as as he started off, I thought was very was very useful in a lot of ways. I mean, Dr. Musavian is uh, a professor at Princeton. He's uh, in many ways uh, somebody who is, as well as uh, of course his uh, illustrious career within the Iranian uh, power structure. But he's somebody who is uh, very much familiar to us. And at the same time, I think the framing is one that really shows clearly the, the difficulties of breaking through the status quo, right? This is one of these relationships with its long history and with its institutional presence that is very difficult to break through and really to change the, the dynamics, I think, are, are very hard. What we see now, of course, in many ways is an attempt to solve the most pressing of those problems through the nuclear negotiations. And I think everybody will benefit from seeing some kind of resolution. But it's also interesting to note then that this doesn't really seem to change very much else on the ground, right? Because for us to go beyond that in many ways is then, unless we do get to, as Trita said, more of a collective security uh, sort of uh, framework, then it requires one side or the other to back down. And that seems unlikely to me. It seems to me then that what we're, what we're seeing here reflects a dynamic in which we'll have in some ways a continuation of the status quo, but one in which the level of tension is reduced. That is a good thing, right? That level, uh, reduced level is good for us, the United States. It's good for our Arab allies. It's good for the Israelis. And it has a potential to lead to some of the other crises at least having a slightly uh, more favorable uh, outcome. The situation in Iraq, clearly, the situation in Syria and Lebanon, these are things that need a, a reduction in tension among the major players rather than an increase. And this is something then that one can at least uh, hope for. We're, uh, we're, we're pleased. Uh, I mean, I think uh, the, in that sense, this is a, a very positive thing. We're uh, pleased to have had the opportunity to hear from all of our panelists. Uh, we are going to, I think, uh, end our session now, and we're going to bring us back a little closer to on time. So uh, thanks to all of you. Thanks to the panelists for their wonderful presentations, uh, and thanks to the National Council on U.S.-Arab relations.